Hey everybody, welcome back to our series on Grace for the Afflicted. This is section two, part two. We're going through chapters eight, nine, and ten today. And um, I'm super excited for these next couple of chapters. And thank you everyone for joining. And I'm just going to jump right into it with Psalms 94, 19. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consultations delight my soul. Chapter 8 is Overwhelmed Anxiety Disorders. Everyone knows what it is like to feel anxious, that uncontrollable, apprehensive feeling that comes over us when we are stressed. At normal levels, anxiety rouses us to action. It causes us to study more for an exam. It prepares us for action in dangerous situations. It keeps us on task as we give an important presentation to our boss. Anxiety is normal cognitive and sociological, whatever that big word, (laughs) response that God designed to call our attention the seriousness of an event or situation and motive uh, motivates us to action with anxiety disorder however the anxiety is not mild and brief but severe and chronic panic attacks a consuming wave of fear and dread are a common characteristic of anxiety disorders while severe anxiety has been recognized as a problem it was typically only a symptom of melancholia this is an understandable this is understandable given that even modern mental health care providers seldom encounter seriously depressed patients who are not as anxious to a significant degree. While the first modern medical description of anxiety appeared in Richard Bruton's 1621 Compidium, I probably said that wrong, The Anatomy of the Melancholia, it was not until the 19th century that anxiety was first recognized as a common thread running through a set of related conditions. In the DSM-5, the section on anxiety disorders is placed immediately after the depressive disorders in recognition of a strong relationship between these two categories of distress. The primary anxiety disorders are separation anxiety disorder, selective mutism, specific phobia, social anxiety disorder, panic disorder, agoraphobia, hopefully I said that right, and generalized anxiety disorder. Like all mental illnesses, anxiety disorders result from a complex interaction of psychological, biological, and developmental factors. Research has shown a significant increase since 1950 in anxiety levels of children and college students. This increase has been associated with a lack of social connection and sense of more threatening environment. Psychological factors in children or childhood, such as low self-esteem, fear of being abandoned or rejected, feeling of intense loneliness and helplessness, and early onset of depression have all been suggested to increase a person's risk of developing an anxiety disorder. Early life events such as childhood trauma, a negative family environment, death of a parent or sibling, and an academic failure appear to be predisposing factors. Major life stressors such as physical illness, death of a loved one, a move to a new home, loss of employment, relationship problems, financial problems, or a birth of a child may play a role in triggering the onset of an anxiety disorder. Anxiety disorders, like many psychiatric disorders, are most effectively treated with a combination of medication and psychotherapy. In addition, there are a number of lifestyle changes people can make that will help reduce their anxiety. Anxiety disorders 
and stimulants such as caffeine or nicotine do not mix because stimulants increase the likelihood and severity of panic attacks. They should be avoided. Individuals with an anxiety disorder should increase their level of exercise. Exercise over 15 weeks or more has been shown to reduce anxiety anxiety significantly. A healthy lifestyle that includes exercise, adequate rest, and good nutrition can help reduce the impact of panic attacks. But the other ways of treatment are antioxidants, I think I said that right, antidepressants, and psychotherapy. The people of the biblical times recognized that fear and anxiety had both cognitive and um, psychological components. A number of scriptures describe the mental anguish of anxiety, um, Psalms 94.19 and Proverbs 12.25, while others illustrate the overwhelming fear can cause pounding heart, trembling, and physical pain, Job 4.14, Psalms 48.5-6, Isaiah 13.7-8, While no clear examples of anxiety disorders exist in the scripture, there does appear to be a description of panic attacks in Psalms 55. Authored by King David, Psalms 55 describes the betrayal by David's friend and, and counselor, 2 Samuel 15:31. Heartbroken by his son Abs- Absalom, Absalom's attempt to take the throne from him, David appears to begin to have panic attacks when he learns that Anthropol, I think I said that right, I'm not too sure, th- this is his friend, has also turned against him. The symptoms David describes meet the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for panic attacks. Individuals suffering with major depressive disorder like King David often also struggle with clinically significant levels, high levels of anxiety. Anxiety disorders result from a neurobiological dysfunction. They are brain disorders. The overwhelming panic described by David in Psalms 55 is not the same as the normal levels of worry and concern that Jesus talks about in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 25-34, and the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, 6, and Peter in 1 Peter 5, 7, mentioned in their epistles. As the body of Christ, we must be aware of this difference in ministering to those struggling with anxiety disorders. The scriptures do not teach that anxiety is a sin, but rather anticipate and expect that we will experience fear and anxiety at some level. The great truth the Bible does teach us about anxiety is that when we struggle, God is present, taking care of our needs and providing the sustaining grace needed to preserve in a fallen world. We move on to chapter 9 now, which is broken and crushed trauma and stressor-related disorders. The trauma and stressor-related disorders are serious psychological reactions that develop in some individuals following exposure to a traumatic or stressful even Events such as childhood neglect, childhood physical or sexual abuse, combat, physical assault, sexual assault, natural disaster, or an accident, or torture. The characteristic symptom of a psychological distress resulting from childhood emotional neglect is impairment in the child's ability to relate to interpersonal or interpersonally to adults and peers. This symptom is unique to disorders resulting from a pattern of insufficient caregiving that limits an infant's opportunity for stable attachments. The characteristic symptoms of all other trauma and stress-related disorders can be placed into a broad category. Research has shown that the vast majority, 89.7% of the population, reports exposure to a traumatic event. 
In fact, exposure to multiple tragic or traumatic events in one's lifetime is the norm. However, only a small percentage of individuals exposed to trauma will go on to show trauma-related disorders. A number of factors have been found that increase a person's risk of significant distress after exposure to a traumatic event. These risk factors include experiencing a prior trauma, pre-existing psychological problems, a family history of mental illness, a lower socioeconomic status, high trait anxiety, and a lack of social support. As can be seen from the previous description, uh, psychological trauma has destructive effects on both the anatomy and function of the brain. Successful treatment of the trauma-related disorders usually requires both medication and some form of psychotherapy. Selective serotonin reputake inhibitors Psychotherapy are two of the forms of treatment we used or we see used today. The oldest historical reference to traumatic events leading to mental illness can be found in the Old Testament. While describing the destruction that will come upon the Israelites if they choose not to keep their covenant with God, Moses says that the disobedience will result in drought, disease, military oppression, rape, robbery, and slavery. He goes on to say that these events will be so traumatic, so devastating, that you shall be driven mad by the sight of what you see in Deuteronomy 28:34. In my opinion, this is cl- a clear reference to what we today call post-traumatic stress disorder. In addition, two individuals described in the Old Testament, Jacob and Job, experienced trauma and subsequently display the symptoms of PTSD. The events in the life of Jacob are well known to the followers of both Judaism and Christianity. The son of Isaac and grandson of Abraham, Jacob was born holding on to the heel of his twin brother. With this assistance of his mother, Rebekah, Jacob stole his brother's firstborn birthright by deceiving his blind and dying father into giving him the family blessing. Despite this deception, God was faithful to his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and blessed Jacob and his family. With his four wives, Jacob had twelve sons who became the fathers of the twelve tribes of Israel. Jacob died in Egypt of natural causes at the age of 147, Genesis 57-28. The story of Jacob's traumatic exposure and subsequent mental health problems are described in the book of Genesis and the writings of Titus. The trauma that devastates Jacob is the apparent death of his favored son. Joseph was killed by wild animals. Jacob's sons present their father with Joseph's coat in many colors, torn and covered in blood, as proof of his violent death. Exposure to this event meets the first criteria for the post-traumatic stress disorder in the DSM-5. While a period of profound grief and sorrow would, would be expected following the death of a child, the effects of this trauma adversely affect Jacob's ability to function for the rest of his, family, or his life. Following Joseph's apparent death, Jacob goes into a deep depression that lasts years and develops an unrealistic fear that something simil- similar will happen to Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. This causes Jacob to not allow Benjamin to leave his side even as an adult. When it becomes necessary to allow Benjamin to leave with his brothers to buy food in Egypt due to a famine, Jacob refuses putting the entire family at risk of starvation. The overwhelming fear that traumatic that the traumatic death of Joseph will somehow be repeated in Benjamin's life. Jacob's relationship with his other sons alters his perception of his surroundings and limits his ability to make decisions for his family. When viewed within a modern diagnostic context, Jacob appears to meet the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Job was a prominent and uh, wealthy leader of a family clan. God states there was no one like him on earth, blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil in Job 1.8. Because of his great faith, Job was assaulted by Satan. In a single day, Job lost his wealth and status. All his servants were murdered and his ten children died in a windstorm. Even after his incredible set of traumatic events, Job held strong to his faith, causing Satan to afflict him with painful sores all over his body. Exposure to any of the traumatic events Job experienced would meet the first criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder and the DSM-5. A period of profound sadness would be expected after such a set of personal tragedies. However, the psychological and psycho... sociological effects of these traumas affect Job for at least several months, Job 7-3. Jewish tradition tells us it was a full year. The detail provided in the book of Job offers us clear insight into the thoughts and feelings and actions of Job as he tries to cope with the devastation that has come upon him. As he debates his friends on the cause of his circumstance, Job describes virtually every symptom seen in the individual suffering with PTSD today. He has nightmares and fearful visions of tragic events. He's depressed, irritable, unable to sleep, emotionally numb, and wishes that death might end his suffering. The biblical descriptions of PTSD in the lives of Jacob and Job demonstrate to us that mental health problems are no respecter of faith. Simply being a person of faith, even an exemplary faith as in the case of Job, is not enough to keep one from struggling with mental health problems. The unfortunate fact is that mental illness occurs at the same rates in followers of Christ as it does outside the church. Yet in the midst of trauma and tragedy, faith serves as as a stabilizing anchor in an ever-changing sea. Jacob and Job were both overwhelmed by trauma, which psychologically and physically damaged them, yet their faith was the sustaining force that gave them a foundation from which to heal. We're now in chapter 10, which is Distressed and Destructive Personality Disorders. Carrie, whose mother is diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, says, My mother rages and alienates everyone, then wonders why she has no friends. She is very intense, making false accusations, and has even made up lies about me. Personality disorders are characterized by a long-lasting, rigid pattern of maladaptive thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. This enduring pattern of inner experience and behavior deviates from the expectations of an individual's culture. Because of the inflexibility and persuasiveness of these patterns, they cause serious relational problems and impairment of functioning for the afflicted individual. The characteristic symptoms of personality disorders fall into four categories, distorted thinking, emotional dysregulation, impulsive control problems, and interpersonal difficulties. Normally, we would skip through the definitions of these characteristics, but I think they are vital in this section. Distorted thinking is an extreme and inaccurate pattern of perceiving and interpreting oneself, others, and the world around them. Examples of distorted thinking patterns include idolizing the than devaluing other people or oneself, extreme black or white thinking, 
distrustful, suspicious thoughts and unusual or odd beliefs that are con- contrary to cultural norms and, and thoughts that include perceptual distortions and bodily illusions. Emotional dysregulation is an inability to mod modulate the range, intensity, liability, and appropriateness of emotional responses. Some personality disorders are characterized by emotional sensitivity and a tendency to experience intense feelings. Other disordered individuals show little or no emotional response regardless of the circumstance or situation. Still, other personality disorders are characterized by emotional extremes, one moment overwhelmed with intense emotions and the next numb and disconnected. Impulse-controlled problems are a third common characteristic symptom of personality disorders. Impulse control is the degree to which a person can regulate their internal drives or impulses to act. Much like the emotional regulation problem described earlier, personality disorder individuals have problems regulating their impulses. Some personality disorders are characterized by behavioral over-control and and inability to act, while others are characterized by a lack of behavioral control, acting spontaneously without forethought. Interpersonal difficulties are common to all of the personality disorders, as would be expected. The three characteristic symptoms already described make it difficult for the pers- for personality disorders, um, disordered individuals to form and maintain healthy relationships. Given that personality disorders are deeply ingrained in rigid patterns of maladaptive thoughts maladaptive thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, psychotherapy, talk therapy, is seen as the first line of treatment. Several medications um, have also been found to be helpful in the treatment of specific personality disorders. The Bible describes two individuals whose thoughts and behaviors suggest they were suffering from a personality disorder. Following the death of Joshua and before the anointing of Saul as the first king, the Israelites were a loose confederation of tribes periodically ruled by judges. Samson is the last judge described in the Old Testament in Judges 13 through 16. Historically standing between the old tribal Israel and coming monarchy, a member of the tribe of Dan, he judged Israel for 20 years, during which time he began to deliver Israel from the Philistines, Judges 13:5. Unlike earlier judges who were called to serve as adults, God physically appeared to Samson's childless mother and father to announce his birth prior to his conception. God instructs Samson's parents that he will be set apart to the Lord as a Nazarite from the womb. He is never to consume alcohol, become ceremonially unclean by touching or consuming into contact with a dead body, or cut his hair. Numbers 6, 1 through 6. Another unique aspect of Samson's calling as a judge is that the Israelites do not cry out to God for deliverance or repent from their sinful ways, prompting the divine selection of a judge to lead them at as had happened previously. Samson's selection as a judge is divinely initiated by God himself to begin the delivery of the Israelites from the Philistines. The scriptures tell us that as Samson grew up, the Lord empowered him, and at approximately the age of 20, the Spirit of the Lord began to control him. What most people know about Samson are his amazing feats and superhuman strength. 
killing a lion with his bare hands, defeating 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, pulling down the city gates of Gaza and carrying them to the top of the nearby hill in his final act of strength, single-handedly destroying the Philistine, uh, Philistine temple and Dagon killing himself along with the 3,000 Philistines. Perhaps more importantly, as it relates to this discussion are the numerous bad decisions and inappropriate actions that Samson takes throughout his short life. His first adult act detailed in book in the book of Judges is the selection of the Philistine girl against the wishes of his parents rather than an, an Israelite to be his bride. Following this, he violates his Nazarite vow and the Jewish dietary law by eating honey out of the carcass of a dead lion. He also gives some of the same honey to his parents, but does not tell them where it came from. This causes them to unknowingly violate the dietary laws as well. Prior to his wedding ceremony, he participates in drink in a drinking party, again violating his Nazarite vow. At the same party, he deceitfully uses an impossible-to-solve riddle in an attempt to con his groomsmen out of 30 linen robes and 30 sets of clothes. When his groomsmen gain the upper hand on him through their own deception and solve the riddle, Samson, in anger, kills 30 innocent men and takes their clothes to pay his debt. In this act, he once again violates his Nazarite vow by touching the dead men's bodies to remove their clothing. Because of his anger at the groomsmen, Samson never returns to his new life to consummate their marriage, causing her father to assume that he has abandoned her. To protect his daughter and his family's honor, the father gives Samson's bride to the best man as his wife. When Samson finds out about his sometime about this sometime later in relation, he burns the Philistines' field and grain supply. The Philistines take revenge for this act by burning alive Samson's former bride and her father. Samson, driven by revenge himself, kills those responsible. Though a Nazarite set apart to the Lord and divinely called judge of Israel, Samson visits Philistine prostitutes and at some point falls in love with a woman named Delilah. The name Delilah means devotee and suggests that she may have been a pagan temple prostitute. His final poor decision is to tell the deceptive Delilah the source of his strength, a final violation of his Nazarite vow, leading to his capture and imprisonment by the uh, Philistines. If we look at Samson's thoughts and actions within a modern diagnostic context, he appears to meet the criteria for antisocial personality disorder. The prophet Hosea was called by God to minister to the northern kingdom of Israel. In Hosea's time, Israel had turned from God to worship Baal. Hosea's charges was to call the Israelites to repentance for their spiritual unfaithfulness. We see in the opening scene of the book that Hosea was instructed by the Lord to marry Gomer in Hosea 1-2. I assume that Hosea was in love with Gomer at the time God told Hosea that Gomer would be unfaithful to him, but that he should marry her anyway. God used the marriage of Hosea and Gomer as an example to the Israelites of their spiritual unfaithfulness toward him. For the purpose of this description, I would like to focus on Gomer, the person removed from the broader context of her representation of Israel. We know nothing of Gomer's history before she married Hosea. 
We only know that God told Hosea she would be unfaithful to him. Early in their marriage, they were blessed with a son. Sometime after that, Gomer began to stray from the marriage. Emotionally, she was unstable, declaring her love for Hosea one minute and her disdain the next. She gave birth to a daughter as a result of an adulterous affair. Despite her unfaithfulness, Hosea remained with Gomer. She gave birth to another illegitimate child, this time a son. At some point after the birth of her third child, she abandoned Hosea and the children. Fueled by an unsustainable desire for marital things, she went through a number of adulterous relationships. Adultery in ancient Israel was punishable by death and repeated affairs would have been a risky pattern of behavior. Despite Hosea's warnings of the consequences of Gomer's behavior and his pleas for her return, her life continued in a downward spiral. From multiple adulterous relationships, she turned to prostitution as a means of supporting herself. She lost her faith, drank to excess, and may have began cutting herself. Ultimately, Gomer found herself alone and emotionally broken owned as property by another man. When viewed within a modern diagnostic context, Gomer appears to meet the criteria for borderline personality disorder. The stories of Samson and Gomer are tragic tales that fully detail the pain and destruction resulting from personality disorders. In personality disorders, not only is the person afflicted, damaged, but so is everyone they are in a relationship with. As these two stories so clearly demonstrate, I believe that we learned two very important lessons about personality disorders from the lives of Samson and Gomer. First, a personality disorder does not disqualify an individual from a relationship with or service to God. God used the various mistakes and poor decisions of both Samson and Gomer to draw both of them and the Israelites closer to him. God's will is clearly sovereign over the wrong thinking and inaccurate perceptions associated with personality disorders. Second, God is actively seeking those who struggle with personality disorders and longs for an intimate relationship with them. The book of Hosea not only describes Gomer's sinful behavior and the destruction that is brought on her and her family, but it also gives a godly process by which she was restored and healed and healing occurred. At the end of his life, Samson, broken and humbled after months of imprisonment, prays that God will give him his strength once more. God answered his prayer, and in a single, divinely empowered act, Samson eliminated the entire Philistine leadership. This was a major turning point in Israel's conflict with the Philistines. Samson's faith is honored in the book of Hebrews, Roll Call of Faith, Hebrews 11.32, where he is listed alongside such noted biblical figures as Gideon, David, Samuel. Restoration and redemption are possible for those with personality disorders. In fact, it is God's will for those who are are afflicted. Thank you for joining us this week on Grace for the Afflicted, Section 2, Part 2. Um, I love the series so much in this episode. I feel like we got a lot of information that was very uh, needed. And um, I look forward to finishing off this series with you. We got a few more weeks left and I will see you next week.